0: I haven't always had control over the experiences that I've had in my life, but I have control over how I tell the story of them.
1: I was thinking this is the greatest thing ever, and it is.
2: My writing process is the same. I'm just a girl who likes to write.
1: Oh, sometimes when you talk about the stuff that sucks, people will pay you money and you'll feel better about it, and then you can buy your Prozac. If you are waiting
0: for permission... To have a voice in this world and to tell your story in this world, then you're not going to get it.
3: Hi, I'm Lux Albtraum. And I'm Lee Stein. And this is the Binder Cast, a conversation series featuring our favorite women and gender nonconforming writers. This week, we're talking about how the internet has transformed what it means to be a writer from how we get our start to how we build a fan base to how we manage success. I definitely got my
1: start as a writer on the internet. Because I was posting short stories and poems to my Live Journal back in 2002 or 2003. And if anyone listening doesn't know what Live Journal was, it was an online diary community. And I got enough of a fan base that a teenage boy in New Jersey stole one of my short stories and had it published in his high school literary magazine under his own name.
3: I was also on LiveJournal. That's kind of how I learned to write. And I should note, it still exists. It's just owned by the Russians now. Anyway, I learned to write on LiveJournal, and my writing career has pretty much all been on the internet. I've never worked for a publishing house, never worked for a print magazine or a print newspaper. My first uh, foray into professional writing was as an intern at Nerve.com, and my first writing job was at Gawker Media. So I'm pretty much a web native when it comes to media. But at the same time, I'm also old enough that I remember the early days of the internet and how different it was. You know, back when we were starting our live journals, the internet didn't matter as much to the rest of the world. So if you cared and you invested, it wasn't that hard to build yourself a fan base and become a web celebrity. And back in those days, you know, before YouTube, before Twitter, before Vine, one of the biggest ways that you gained notice on the internet was through writing. And writing long-form stuff, like things that would be considered long reads now, were basically all that there was. And it's been really fascinating to see how the Internet's evolved. And, you know, as real celebrities have come on the Internet, and as the Internet has become more important to everyone, the people who found it important and who were important on the Internet even five or ten years ago have kind of seen their stars fall. Right. I think it's really interesting
1: to have these authors now get told that they must have an online platform. And I'm like, where have you been? Like, it's been 12 years. Where's your live journal? So that's something we're definitely going to talk about this week with our two guests, Roxane Gay and Emily Gould, who both gained big fan followings writing for blogs and online lit mags. But I think each of them have had really different experiences along the way. Roxane Gay is the best-selling author of the essay collection, Bad Feminist, the novel An Untamed State, and a collection of poetry and stories called *Aiti*. She is also a professor at Purdue, a columnist for the New York Times, the editor of The Butter, and a co-editor of Pink. I asked Roxanne how she manages to do so much and still find the time to watch shedding Tatum movies and play Candy Crush.
2: You know, I don't have a set schedule. I, um, I just... Pretty much work constantly and procrastinate constantly and somehow manage to get things done though not necessarily when they're supposed to be. I'm not really good with deadlines even though I need to get better but I generally spend a few hours a day reading because that helps me to just reset and I write off and on throughout the day and during the school year depending on, you know, what day it is will depend on whether or not I'm on campus having office hours or teaching, and then after work, grading and planning for the next class and so on.
1: Are you the kind of writer who ever disconnects from the internet or uses a program like Freedom?
2: No, I'm not going to pay someone to teach me self-control.
1: I'm wondering now that your Bad Feminist was a bestseller and you're in this position where you have tens of thousands of Twitter followers, I imagine that you get asked to do a lot of things? And how do you say no?
2: Um, I'm trying, but people don't take no for an answer, which is incredibly frustrating. I say no, I can't do this right now, and they're like, oh, okay, do you mind if we circle back in a few weeks? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, actually, I really do. I'm not going to be less busy in a few weeks. Um, but I'm trying more and more to say no just because there are no more hours in the day. Like, I have seven books coming out that I have to write. And so, Like, I just don't have time to do certain things anymore. It can be a bit of a a cycle where you say no and people don't take no for an answer. And that's ironic when women won't take no for an answer. I'm like, really? (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I also understand that people, when they are asking for things, they are generally doing so for the greater good of a project that they're working on. And so, you know, they're trying to advocate as best they can for that project. Um, and it's flattering, but I'm learning how to put my foot down slowly but surely. And sometimes I have someone help me put my foot down.
1: That's great. You have a cheerleader for saying no? Yeah, I do. One of the big things Roxanne says no to these days is writing for free. But unlike many writers, she doesn't think writing for free should always be an
2: automatic No. I think you have to write for free uh, at some points in your career to get started. But you want to make sure that you're writing for free for outlets that deserve your writing. Um, And so, like, you never write for free for an ugly website, for one. I mean, that doesn't even make sense. Um, And you want to make sure you're writing for free with people who can actually provide exposure. If it's a a magazine that has 100 Twitter followers, they're not going to give you any exposure. And so you have to be savvy about who you write for free for, and why. And so I wrote for free for many, many years. It didn't even cross my mind that I could ask for money, which was my fault. But, you know, we just tend to sell ourselves short. And then slowly but surely, people start to offer you money. And at first, the money seems negligible. But it's still compensation, which is very nice. And then if you're lucky and you work hard, it's a combination of both hard work and luck, you get to a place where you can say no to writing for free.
1: That's another good thing to say no to.
2: Yes. Oh, absolutely. Um, I get offers all the time to write for free, like for exposure. And I'm like, I think I'm covered on the exposure front.
1: You know, what has the online community given you for your career?
2: Well, I mean, it's given me a lot of just community, like other people who are similar, not like-minded, like in terms of we all have the same opinions, but we all care about the world we live in, we care about popular culture, we care about art, um, and so to be able to interact with people like that has been wonderful. I've also gotten a great deal of support from the internet and a lot of my readers, and they they are loyal, and I love talking to them and hearing from them, whether they agree with me or not. The people that disagree with me, in ways that aren't like you suck, are really fantastic because they make me think, and they challenge me. And I think it's good to be challenged as a critic. There are plenty of writers and critics who don't use the internet. Like I'm thinking of the novelist and short story writer, Otessa Moschweg. She doesn't have any online presence and she's fantastic and one of my favorite writers. I think it can be useful. And I think that in general, if I think someone should have some kind of online presence, but the world will not come to an end if you don't.
1: Right. It's almost like... You know, writers seem to be getting this message these days, but it's more from like top down. It's like from publishing that you won't be able to get your book published unless you have a platform and you have to have X number of Twitter followers.
2: You know, I keep hearing this, but I've never encountered it. That's probably because I already had an online presence. So that just worked out that way, you know, like that they didn't bring it up. But my publishers never said anything to me. I have two publishers and they've never said anything to me about the Internet. Except, will you tweet this out? <laughs> will you use your power, Roxanne? Yeah. <laughs> so, And I know p- many other people who have published books. Sometimes you hear that, but it's just from people who don't know what the hell they're talking about. An online presence is only as good as you make it.
1: Right, and the same could be said about a book. If your book isn't good, it doesn't matter if you're online. Correct. Presence
2: is- like, you can have a great online presence, but your shitty book is still going to be a shitty book. And so it's important to keep that in mind. And if you're going to have a website, you know, if you're going to have a website, you have to maintain it or have someone maintain it. If you're going to have a Twitter account or a Facebook page, you have to use it. And if you're not, then don't have it. You know, what I tell writers is, like, pick one. You don't have to have it all. Even though people will tell you that. Just pick one. Pick one and do do something with it.
1: And how does your how does your writing life, like your actual sitting down to work on your book that's coming out next year, does it look any different from when you were writing in Untamed State?
2: No. Just that I have more outside obligations. I have a New York Times column now and I have just more writing requests and so it's changed in that I have more demands on my time and my brain space. But, my writing process is the same i 'm just a girl who likes to write,
1: yeah, I remember you said something recently. maybe it was on Twitter about how you don 't understand writers who say they hate writing when you love it so much.
2: yeah, I mean, I respect everyone 's truth, <laughs> but I love writing, and like it's for me it 's happiness and probably self medication to some extent it 's not a torturous thing. I mean, there are certainly days where the words aren 't coming and it 's not pleasant but it's not a a torture. It's not a burden. You know, it's not something that makes me want to cry. Writing is pure pleasure. And I love that.
1: What's a common misconception that people have about you and where you are in your career?
2: Um, A lot of people think I don't read my own email, which is adorable. I get a lot of emails saying, whoever reads Roxanne's email, I'm like, who do you think reads my email? (laughs) And a lot of people think I live in New York City, and I don't. I live in Lafayette, Indiana.
1: But you have a personal assistant now,
2: right? I do. Um, uh, She works for me for like 20 hours a week. Uh, Her name is Melissa Moore, and she's fantastic.
1: How has that been, to be able to delegate some of your lengthy to-do list? Like, is it hard to delegate things, or is that something... It's hard
2: to delegate, and I'm not doing nearly enough that I should. Um, it's so, But I, increasingly, I'm going to have to. I'm going to start delegating certain things to her that I just don't want to deal with anymore, like travel requests and, um, like... Dealing with my, tra- I have a speaking agent, and so I'm just going to let them work out my calendar because I'm tired of dealing with it. And, but it's hard to let go of those things, and so, um, I'm working on it. So right now, I just have her doing research, and uh, she helps me with the butter for sure. She's uh, my right hand at the butter, which is, I couldn't do it without her. People think they know everything. Like I'm very careful about what I talk about online, and I'm very deliberate. So there are parts of my life that I don't talk about, or that I, I sort of shield. And so people do take all kinds of liberties, and it's really annoying. But I understand where it comes from. So what can you do? I try to just correct them politely and say, sort of, no, you actually, you you know a part of me, and you so you do know a part of me quite well, but you don't know the whole of me. And when it comes to other boundaries, like I was at an event and a woman was like, I want to kiss you. And I was like, oh, that's really nice, but you can't. And she kissed me anyway, which was weird. And like sometimes people will say, I know you don't like hugs, but I'm going to hug you. Like, well, you know, I don't like hugs. Like You know this thing to be true and you're going to do it anyway. And so when they do that, I just sort of I try to make it clear like that wasn't cool.
1: It's like people want to be the special one.
2: Yeah, that I, like, led into the thing. It's, I just don't like hugs. I don't like touching people. I don't like people touching me. I mean, well, there's one person I like touching me, but I don't like the random people touching me. That's weird, and I don't like it. And I've never liked it, and it's okay. I shouldn't even have to explain myself.
1: Do you ever fantasize about deleting your Twitter?
2: Oh, no, no. Not at all.
1: You don't have a sick relationship to it like I
2: do. <laughs> no, I love Twitter. I get angry sometimes because people... N- or mean to me on Twitter, and that's not fun, but I love Twitter. Twitter's always been, because I've lived in rural places for the past decade, 11 years or so, Um, Twitter has kept me sane. So no, it doesn't ever cross my mind.
3: So one of the things that I think is really interesting about Roxanne is how unique her online experience and career has been in a lot of ways. And I mean, A, just because she went from writing for places like The Rumpus and HTML Giant to being a best-selling author and New York Times columnist. I mean, that's already an outlier. But beyond that, even, what I think is interesting is that She's managed to largely avoid a lot of controversy. I mean, obviously she has her haters. Everyone has their haters if they get enough notoriety. But most people who develop an online fan base often find themselves more aggressively attacked than I feel like she has. Or I can't think of any kind of like pro-Roxanne, anti-Roxanne controversy that I've seen in the ways that I've seen from many other internet stars.
1: I think you're right. I do know Roxanne has her haters on Twitter, and she just shuts them down with, like, such power and grace. And I wonder if it has to do with Roxanne's age, because I think she's 40. While you and I were, like, writing about our, our feelings on the internet, Roxanne was getting her PhD. So I feel like she's had a decade of experience, you know, crafting her arguments and growing up. And it makes her better able to handle just the stupid idiots on Twitter.
3: So you're saying that if Roxanne had, say, been 25 in 2007 and just starting to write there, that her experience might have been a little bit different? Because Emily's experience is definitely different. Uh, For those of you who don't know, Emily Gould uh, got her start professionally writing as a Gawker blogger in 2007 and before Gawker she had had a personal blog and a lot of the tone of her personal blog carried over to her writing at Gawker Um, and she got to be known as a very personal essay writer and she was kind of in some ways one of the one of the first people to really establish this era of the personal essay that we find ourselves in right now. And as a result of that, she's gotten a lot of hate and she is a very polarizing figure in a way that I don't feel like Roxanne is. And, you know, Emily herself has said that she is a proto Lena Dunham in a way. And while there's definitely a lot that's different about the two of them, I do think she had these experiences that we see mirrored in Dunham's career. You know, she was a young woman writing about the experiences of young women, she got a lot of hate, um, and people developed this obsession with her to the point where she kind of can't do anything without having it dissected and pulled apart and studied both as, you know, what does this mean about her, but also what does this mean about young women? I mean, even now there are people writing essays about Emily Gould's work and what it says about self-obsessed young women. Like when her novel, when her most recent novel came out, there was an essay all about that and about how awful young women on Tumblr are and how Emily Gould proves that.
1: In addition to being proto Lena Denham, Emily Gould is the author of And The Heart Says Whatever, a collection of personal essays, and a novel called Friendship. She is also the founder of a subscription ebook service called Emily Books. Though she started her career working in publishing, as Lux mentioned, she got her big break at Gawker, a credential that continues to haunt her. So you used to write for Gawker? For one glorious year. For one year only.
0: Yeah, one count cal- exactly one year.
1: Wow, yeah, but it was so I would imagine so influential on everything that happened next,
0: yeah, yeah, it was sure, of course, it was, I don't know,, uh. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sometimes I'm like, oh, man, can I just not be the gawker person anymore,
1: but it was like, we can cut that out, no, later. no,
0: it's fine, it's fine, <laughs> it's fine, i like I inevitably am always right. gonna be associated with it. I would like to like live long enough and like do enough other stuff though that it's not like the first thing in my I'm like being very self-aggrandizing, imagining that I'll merit an obituary. But like, it just—if it could just be in like the second paragraph. Sure. You know. Sure. I hear that. Yeah, because it used to be in the first sentence of my my bio, and it—and when it still is, I'm very irritated by that because I'm like, I did a lot of
1: other stuff. It was eight years ago. Like, yeah, that's a long time. But because of her time at Gawker and the New York Times essay Emily wrote after she quit. She was able to sell her debut essay collection for $200,000. You can read all about her book advance and how she spent it in an essay I love called How Much My Novel Cost Me. We've included a link in our show notes. I talked to Emily about how a dream like a huge book advance looks on paper versus in reality. I mean, even I have this dream of what it will mean to be a published author and i'm about to have my third book come out next year and i still like it's still not the dream in my mind and i read your essay and i'm like this is what it's really like it looks so glamorous from the outside and you feel like you can't complain about anything because you have someone else's dream yeah but the daily reality of it is much more complicated than that to be fair there are some things about it that are definitely not the things that i th-
0: thought would be good or that I thought that I wanted when I was, you know, 25 or 26 years old. I never thought about this until sort of after Friendship came out and had a mostly, you know, like there were still some negative things, but mostly positive critical reception. But I still had most of the same feelings. And I realized that the fun part of writing turns out to be that you do the writing part. (laughs) Like that's as much fun. That's as fun as it gets. Which is really depressing, <laughs> but it's, it's okay and it's, and it's good, but it's also like like none of the stuff around it is the point of it. I, get, I mean, I get some like notches from the performance aspect of doing readings, I like it, it's fun, I like talking to people, that stuff is fun for me, but it's, it's
1: not the point of it. But as much as Emily loves to connect with her audience, there are boundaries she now has to set for herself when publishing work online
0: I've decided to not um, write anymore about myself in venues where I don't feel safe um, and I don't publish things that are about myself that where I'm like making myself very very vulnerable and very exposed unless it is going to be in a book and it's going to be edited and I'm getting you know, either really, really well published and really well edited or like real money that you can live on. So that means kind of no blogging, no blogging the way I used to anyway, like no sort of this happened and I'm going to immediately like kind of process it at the same time that I'm writing about it. I mean, I'm saying this and I'm thinking of exceptions that have happened even in the course of the last year, but there's so few and far between now. And it used to just
1: be like how I lived my life. I pulled out this quote from Friendship where I think it's Amy's boyfriend says, What happened on the Internet today? And Amy's thinking, How are you supposed to describe the millions of things that had happened? And all those micro events were so inconsequential on their own, but so compelling in the moment. All of them were tricking you into thinking they might eventually add up to something. And maybe they would.
0: That's the thing. They do. I mean, maybe over the course of years accrue some kind of meaning A relationship forms or you become a different kind of person but yeah you would hardly be able to pin down the tweet that started it or the blog post or like the moment of yeah, right but I also read it gif, as the gift that you saw that the changed gift your that changed life everything
1: yeah <laughs> that would be a great novel to um right so what would you say to what would you say to a 25 year old young woman who's like I love writing personal essays I feel like this is really what I'm good at I want a book deal what should I do um
0: have fun with it. Write a ton. You know, do do it until you burn out, basically, <laughs> and have a great time with it. Try to, I, I mean, I would, I would tell that person what I tell all writers who ask me for advice, so it's usually people who are younger than me, is find readers. Some editors are great, some editors are not. Some editors are great but don't have your best interests at heart. Find readers who you trust. Share your work with them before you share it with the Internet. Like, I care a ton about whether people like me, even people I haven't met, I know it's dumb, but I care, and I wish I didn't, because it does hold me back. Like, I'm held back by it. I think in my earlier work, I just, like, had no idea what the stakes were, and that's what allowed me to be as open as I was and as revealing of stuff about other people's lives, but I would never write about my mom in the same way that I did when I was 27, and I'm sorry that I did. I, like, it, was, it wasn't It was worth it. That essay is not good enough to, like, justify the, like, damage that I did to our relationship. If it had been a slightly better essay, though. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But I do think that is the calculus, though. You have to say, like, okay, is this good enough? Is this good enough to justify what it's going to do? Because, like, you can really hurt your life. I mean, it's not even about, like, hurting other people people although it is like when you get right down to it like the really selfish thing is like is this going to hurt my life in such a way that it's going to make it harder for me to like exist and continue to work in the future so that's a thing for a 25 year old writer who's writing a lot of personal essays on the internet to think about too i don't want to be like careful women muzzle yourselves but you know like but
1: the stuff is real and it's important i read some article years ago like in the atlantic or something about how It's so hard for people to imagine themselves as older. Like, when you're 25, you're like, yeah, maybe I'll be 50 someday, but you can't conceptualize what that would mean. And so your your decisions and your choices are just made based on, like, wherever you are right then because you can't imagine that future self. It's hard to take care of your future self in, like, a packing your lunch for later way. So, like, how are you supposed to
0: take care of your 50-year-old self, you know? Because, like, everyone else is going to get older, but you're not.
1: But... Like all of us, Emily eventually did get older. And after dealing with so much backlash to her personal essays, she found it harder and harder to write in the first person, even in a work of fiction like Friendship.
0: Like, the decision to write in the third person after writing in the first person only for so long was just a matter of necessity. I couldn't do it anymore for a while. It's still hard for me um, sometimes to feel comfortable in the first person because, kind of going back to what I said earlier, like, it feels unsafe Mm-hmm. Um, it was really, I don't want to say traumatic because I feel like there's like actual trauma, you know, but um, it was really rough. It was really hard for me, the reception that my essays and some of my earlier work got. Like I have begun to work on some other essays that are in the first person, but I feel like it'll be years before I am I feel like I'm willing to say, hey, world, come and poke my tender, vulnerable first person writing again. Here, have at it.
1: Do people feel an intimacy with you?
0: Oh, yeah, but I like that. That's fine. I'm totally fine with that. I like it and it's lovely, and I don't want to discourage people from feeling that way at all. I wish there was more of me. And that I, like, had more time to, like, properly respond to everyone who writes me, you know, a multi-paragraph email about, like, all of the different ways that my experience resonated with them or, like, or even my fictional ideas resonated with them. It's great. And it is the entire point. Oh, and also, like, the act of writing itself. Right. So the only things that are good about writing are the act of writing itself and uh, when other people feel something because of your work. And because it's definitely not about money. Um, and it's definitely not about the fun of getting to moderate a panel <laughs> or, or go to a conference. Or, but it is about getting to the point in your career where you can like, help other people whose work you like to have their work reach more readers or unite their work with the readers who are in need of it.
1: Emily's relationship to the Internet has evolved a great deal since she first started writing for Gawker. But the thing that changed it the most? Having a baby. Now having time to...
0: Can I say fuck on this podcast? Okay. Um, To fuck around on the internet the way that I used to seems like this amazing, luxury, like you know, like getting into a warm bath and like having, you know, a glass of wine and like a piece of chocolate, like put into your face at the same time. And maybe someone is like massaging your feet. Like that feeling for me is now the feeling of having like 15 minutes alone with my phone. So, (laughs) um, you know, whereas before it would be like this thing that I would like chide myself for doing in between my quote unquote real work. And I would always perpetually feel very guilty about it but now I'm just like oh this is like a fun stress relieving thing for me and it's fun to tweet and I like it and I like my Twitter friends and I like keeping in touch with people's lives so I don't have any other way of being in contact with them really via Twitter and I just see so much more of the good in it of course I've had periods of my life where it's been like this enormously negative thing for me either because it's sort of addictive and feeds into like the worst aspects of my own sort of like brain patterns you know needing other people's approval
1: and like sort of being addicted to feeling recreationally angry which is a huge thing. Another downside to being on social media is that the more you offer up of yourself the less people seem to take you seriously.
0: I think it has a lot to do with being present and accessible. If someone is not present and not accessible you tend to give them credit for being a lot more maybe serious and dignified and, I don't know, just kind of smart all the time than they probably actually are. But that's just because they, like, keep all their dumb thoughts to themselves and they don't put them on Twitter. Like, Zadie Smith probably has tons of dumb thoughts, but we don't know about any of them, And which is, you know, maybe a, actually a brilliant strategic move on her part and on the part of all of the other— because there's still tons of writers who aren't on Twitter— Or on social media or people who don't blog. I've put so many things that I'm proud of out into the world. I've also put so much other stuff out into the world. If you happen to, like, catch me or encounter me for the first time on a day when I'm like, oh, God, this is, like, the worst episode of The Walking Dead. You know, that's, you're going to not probably think of me in the same way that you think of, um, I'm trying to think of someone who's unimpeachably serious. I already used Sadie Smith. Um... Tony Morrison, like if Tony Morrison started tweeting, you would be like, oh, man, like remember when Bell Hooks started tweeting and then she would sort of like retweet praise and you'd be like,
1: God, Bell Hooks, I missed the on. Bell Hooks on Twitter moment.
0: You know, I don't know. Like it's like, that thing of like keep your idols safe, don't right. ever meet them, but like don't even follow them on Twitter. I think
1: it's this interesting Catch-22 though because all authors are getting told that they have to create this platform and... What if you're not good at it? I yeah. mean, right? What if you're only good at writing the books, Yeah. but someone's telling you, well, you're not going to get this published unless you have 2,000 Twitter followers?
0: Well, that makes me want to cry. Because they're being told that by a really bad publicist, someone who is just not good at their job. Like, your job as, as anyone who works in publishing, who is trying to get people to engage with a writer's work, is to, like, cover that writer's ass.
1: And if you're still debating the question of whether or not to register that Twitter account... Emily's got one final thought.
0: Well, no one should be on uh, social media because they think they have to. That just makes me so sad. You should do it because you're addicted to it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> like there's no, no one should do cocaine because they think they have to. <laughs> I mean, it's the exact same thing. Uh, yeah Be sure to follow Roxanne and Emily on the internet where they live. Roxanne is on Twitter at Rgay and Emily is at Emily Gould.
3: The BinderCast is a production of Out of the Binders, Inc., a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to advancing the careers of women and gender nonconforming writers. For more information about Out of the Binders, go to bindercon.com or follow us at BinderCon on Twitter. This episode was hosted by Lux Albtrom and Lee Stein and produced by Jennifer Lai. Our theme music is ready to go by Miss Eves and Quiche. Many thanks to Seth Lind. In an upcoming episode, we'll be talking about collaboration. And in the spirit of teamwork, we'd love your help to finish this episode. Record a voice memo on your smartphone about the times that you have collaborated as a writer, whether that means working with an illustrator, working with an editor, or actually sitting down in a group and working as a team to write a project. You can send your recording to infobindercon.com. That's I-N-F-O at bindercon.com. We're looking forward to hearing all your tips.